Hello, and welcome to yet another edition of Comfortably Unnumb, the official podcast of the Umbrella Society. My name is Blake Anderson, the program's manager here at Umbrella Society, and also the host of this program. Coming to you today from beautiful Victoria, British Columbia. So I think we can officially say that we're on a roll and gaining some momentum with these podcasts. Uh, thank you so much to everybody for the positive feedback and the kind words, uh, for sharing these podcasts, um, you know, on social media and, and your platforms. Um, you know, I, I can definitely say it means a lot to me, but I know it also means a ton to our guests um, to hear such encouraging words. You know, they have the courage to come on this program and share their stories and to get that positive feedback and reinforcement is, is you know, I think really powerful. So thank you so much for helping spread the word of recovery and, uh, you know, doing your part. Um, today, very, very excited uh, for our guest. Yeah, we have another amazing individual coming on, another amazing story. Um, today, uh, Rebecca is coming on the program to talk about her recovery journey and the work she does for Umbrella and her philosophy on recovery. Rebecca is someone who has overcome years of substance use challenges and is now a renowned and celebrated member of the recovery community. Rebecca works at the hospital for Umbrella as part of Island Health's Addiction Medicine Consult Service. She's also the co-facilitator of Umbrella's uh, very own women's group and also does other facilitation for us as well. Um, she is an ambassador for Umbrella as she represents our organization in many speaking engagements and community events. Uh, I feel that the work Rebecca does with the youth in our community is, is really exemplary. Um, Rebecca, she's an absolute force to be reckoned with, and she's a role model for women in recovery. She has uh, also worked in the, the luxury beauty business for 20 years, but she switched to doing full-time umbrella work and part-time makeup freelance work for Estee Lauder companies. Um, and she finds this to be the perfect balance, um, you know, for her between, uh, her passion, uh, for recovery, but also for fashion. So, um, she also has two teenage daughters that are the light of her life and, uh, is just a very engaging person, uh, with, with a wonderful story. So really looking forward to this. Okay. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the program. I think I've been trying to, you know, bat you down for a couple months now to uh to come and do this so i really appreciate you taking the time and we're finally here we're doing it totally thanks blake for having me yes i think i evaded this for a while <laughs> glad to be sitting down and finally doing it absolutely. i'm actually excited Good. to tell a little bit about my story so absolutely yeah um i mean as anyone who knows you you know you're a just such a confident individual and you're just someone who, who kind of exudes that confidence who when you speak it, it you know it really captures the room. You kind of hold yourself with with a with an air of of someone who's who's got her shit together, you know. And and uh, I really appreciate that. But obviously, it takes a lot of hard work to get to a place like that. Uh, this wasn't always the case. And I, I would love to dive in. This is uh, you know your story is not one that I'm overly familiar with. And so I'd love to know kind of what got you into recovery and what what did that look like when you were in active addiction and uh, you know what really gave you that impetus to start making a change. Okay, cool. Um, first of all, just hearing you say those things is it sounds weird okay. because I never thought that that would be something maybe that someone would say about me. Like I probably hoped for that or secretly wanted to be that person or, you know, wanted to have the confidence or, you know, to be able to gain the attention of a room in a positive way. But I never thought that I actually would 
right. be able to in the way that I am now. So that is something that recovery has given me, which totally. to me honestly sounds crazy. So yeah. thank you. Awesome. Um, yeah. So what recovery and addiction looks like or looked like for me? Um, I'll go back a little bit. Um, when I was in grade eight, in the middle of grade eight, my mom and I moved here from Brampton, Ontario, okay. and we moved to Sydney, BC. And uh, we had kind of left uh, my dad in Toronto, my two older brothers, um, kind of to start a new life on our own although that's not the way I remember thinking of it at the time I thought sure. kind of everyone was going to eventually come out and okay. things would be you know like normal family situation but that isn't the way it kind of panned out um shortly before moving from Ontario to uh BC um we were dealing with some family addiction issues in my immediate family um I have two older brothers and my oldest brother, you know, was was really struggling um, okay. in his addiction and had been for a number of years. Um, because I was the baby in the family, it was, I was I was very sheltered from that and it was hidden from me. But I remember finding out, um, you know, that he was really sick and he was an addict. And I remember at the time it just like breaking me. Mm. Um because it was somebody who I loved so much and I watched them get so sick and almost die, you know, like over and over. And um, I remember at that time thinking drugs were never going to be a part of my life. It wasn't going to be a part of my story. I wasn't going to touch drugs. I wasn't going to touch alcohol. That was not the route that I was going to go right. because I had seen how much pain that it could cause not only, you know, my sibling, but like my entire family. Right. Yeah. So when after we moved out here you know so a it was grade eight the middle of a school year super hard Com year. <laughs> yeah like completely different demographic like brampton ontario is not like sydney bc right very you know i came from a very culturally diverse environment to something that was not so so there was a lot of differences um and, you know, me being the new kid, I kind of had to figure out how to make friends mm. and how to be cool and how to be accepted and all that kind of thing. Um, I had always been in competitive sports. So like growing up, I was a competitive gymnast. And when I moved here, um, my mom put me in competitive diving to kind of continue on my athletic um, journey. But, you know, probably a month after moving here, I had smoked my first joint and things just kind of started to change pretty quickly from there on out. Okay. Um, yeah, it was weird because it was something I thought I would never do and everyone around me was doing it. I wanted to fit in. I was the new kid. I, I've always been like outgoing, but also kind of unsure on the inside right. right like so I would appear like I was confident and 
stuff but i i wasn't really so much so i just wanted to fit in as best as i could with so everyone else do whatever it takes to kind of fit in with the crowd oh totally and, right. totally totally so you know by grade nine i had i was still diving and then by the end of grade nine i had quit because i would rather you know smoke weed all day with right. my friends um i was hanging out with a lot of older a, a lot older crew at that point, you know, kids that were still not going to school or had already dropped out of school and that type of thing. And um, I smoked weed for the first year. And then also, I think it was also in grade nine where I had my first drink. And it was as soon as I had my first drink and got drunk for the first time, it was like, that's it. Like, I love right. this. Like, this is, this is how I'm going to talk right. to people and be even more popular and yeah. like talk to guys and talk to the popular girls and right that just became so that social lubricant that you were 100%, looking for a hundred percent a hundred percent but you know when I think back I remember although it gave me like the courage and you know it worked in the way I needed it to at that time it always instantly afterwards made me feel like shit so not just like a hangover, like I, I, I always had a hangover. I was never somebody that could drink and never get a hangover. Right. I was always so jealous of those people, but it was like an emotional toll okay. that from the very beginning it took on me. Right. Um, and I remember, you know, that's when I started getting really depressed and I didn't, I don't remember having any anxiety really in those days, but definitely depression was a huge part of my teenage story um you know so i was just trying to navigate new life new friends a new way of living oh these drugs and alcohol are great i know i'm hanging out with people that i probably shouldn't be Mm. but i also you know kind of loved it at the same time you know being a rebel and getting away with things and um yeah i feel too when you're that age you kind of get swept up in stuff without you know being overly conscious of what, you know, what you're getting yourself into or, you know, those circumstances, right? It's yeah, yeah, totally. And you know what, though, always in the back of my head, I had this, like, I knew where it could take me. Right. But at that point, I'm like, no, I'm just drinking and I'm just doing, you know, some smoking some pot and, right. you know, it can't be that bad. You know, I tried like psychedelics a couple times and I hated it. Like mm-hmm. it was never fun for me. So it wasn't right. something that I enjoyed. Um, I didn't do those drugs very often. Um, and yeah, then I started to dabble in some other substances. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I said, I was always hanging out with an older crew. Um, I typically chose boyfriends that were fresh out of jail or, (laughs) you know, the guy that everyone said to stay away from that type of thing. And that was, oh, of course, it was always the most appealing to (laughs) me. Um, And yeah, so I, I, you know, normally at this point I was drinking, you know, often I mostly dropped out of school by this point. This isn't grade 11, if I remember correctly. And yeah, and then I uh, started dabbling in some other substances and I tried cocaine for the first time. And again, I was hooked. It was Mm. like the first night it was done. From then on out, it was the only thing I could think about. Okay. Um, And 
it was like this switch had gone off. You know, it helped me not get so hungover, I feel mm. like. Um, but it made me even more depressed. You know, right. from the very beginning when I started doing it, it was these huge, deep, dark depressions that I couldn't get out of unless I used and drank again. Right. So it was like this vicious cycle. So it really, that's what amplified. So you're at that point with drinking and weed where it was like yep. kind of, you're yep. starting to open that door and then all of a sudden with, with yep. the cocaine, it just blew it open. Yeah, yeah. totally. Okay. Um, and I, at that point, it was soon after, like I'd completely dropped out of school. None of my friends used and drank the way I did. The ones that I that were still going to school, like my girl crew, like none mm. of them partied as hard as I did. Gotcha. You know, like they always knew how to like stop or, right. you know, go home or maybe not drink one night. Like I could just never do that. So I dropped out of school, although I would still go to school every day to pretend I was there. And I was always under the influence. Like I was okay. always on something at school. Um, and... I can't remember quite how it happened, but I mean, I guess my mom, obviously, I mean, my mom always knew there was something going on because I was sneaking out and I'd get busted for this and that or whatever, but I can't quite remember how the whole I have a problem thing came out. But when I was 17, I remember going to my first drug and alcohol counselor because I knew that I had a problem and I knew that I couldn't stop like on my own. Um, And I didn't know how to navigate that situation at all so we went my mom started taking me to a drug and alcohol counselor and I don't remember much of it like I think I kind of bullshitted my way through most of it because like I Mm -hmm. wanted to be there but I also didn't I was 17 it's like I don't want to like change my whole life right right? your heart heart wasn't in it at that point no like I knew I didn't feel good and there was a problem but um and then I decided to move back to Toronto and like, I need to get out of here. It was mm. like the geographical cure. Yep, they totally. call it. Yep. Right. So I'm Change like, location nope. and my yep. problems are going to be yep. left behind. I'm like, I just need to leave. All the time, um, yeah. so, you know, I had also recently just had an abortion and had this like other sexual trauma and there was just a lot of stuff going on. I'm like, get mm. me out of the city. Mm. I need to go. I'm not safe here. I don't trust myself and I don't trust other people. So yeah. I need to go back um, to Toronto. So I went back and lived with my dad and didn't do any drugs. Okay. Uh, stayed there for a year. It was, a, you know, I, I still continued to drink alcohol, but I feel like it wasn't to the extent that I did when I was in BC because none of my friends in Toronto partied the way that my friends here did so it was just like a totally different vibe like I remember trying to find drugs once and everyone was like what right no like we don't know where to get that nobody does that like are you crazy so I just didn't do it um and I had my got my first job I worked at the Sky Dome for when it was called the Sky Dome I don't know what it's called now Rogers Center maybe or no I don't know where the Blue Jays play anyway sure yeah (laughs) wherever and I worked for like a members only restaurant and had like the best time I was making like way more than minimum wage at the time I remember and I was working like 16 hour days and I was getting huge paychecks and everything was good um the drinking wasn't so much of a problem anymore. I wasn't using any drugs. I was smoking a little bit of weed, but, um, and then I had another 
sexual uh, trauma that honestly just, it was too much. It made me spin and I came back. So I, at this point it would had kind of been this pattern now of like these traumas happening and then me needing to leave the area or situation to cope. Cause again, like, I mean, I was 18 or 19. No, I wasn't even 19. I was still 18 at that time. So I came back here again (laughs) and tried to, um, well, continue living in, I think I was trying to live more in a healthier way. Sure. In my head. Yeah. Like that was my plan. That was the intention. Yeah. Yeah, That was the intention. And soon after I um, moved back, I met my future husband to be and we fell in love and everything was great. And, you know, we we moved in together um, pretty quickly and. But him and I were very similar in uh, some of the ways that we behaved in our patterns. And um, as the years went on, it was, you know, a pretty toxic relationship. I like to say that we were like fire and gasoline. Like we just weren't. There's no conscientious objector out of the two of you. Yeah, no, (laughs) there wasn't. And I remember thinking, you know, so... Before we got married, I had my first daughter. So we had our first daughter, um, and I, you know, everything's beautiful and great. And I remember thinking, this is going to save me. Like, I mm. remember thinking, I'm going to be a mom. Right. This is going to save me. I don't have to party and carry on the way that I used to because I'm going to be a mom, and moms right. don't do that. Yep. Like, this, everything's going to be Just good. turning over yep. the new chapter. Totally. Is. That's so funny. that was great, and... I had my daughter and then a few months later, I remember we went out and our patterns just, it kind of continued on the way that it had been. Um, we got married a couple years after, or I think when my daughter was about 18 months. And I remember thinking when I was getting married, oh my God, I'm going to be a wife. This is going to save me. Right. This is going to change everything because now I'm a mom. I'm also going to be a wife. We have a home. We owned a home at the time. I'm like, this is everything. Like right. I don't need to party anymore. Yeah. Didn't happen that way. Right. You know, every time I thought some external thing was going to help me, it didn't. Right. Um, and again, you know, with my second daughter a few years later, when she was born, same thing. I'm like, now I'm going to be a mom of two. I knew I was having another daughter. I'm like, Again, it's going to save me. This is going to save my life. I'm going to be the best mom in the world. I'm going to be the best wife. Right. You know, none of this party and carry on business. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't yeah. <laughs> work that way. You know, I was, I've was i always been very functional. I always right. kept a job. You know, I had the same job back when the girls were little for like eight years at the Bay. Right. Um, you know, I worked in the cosmetic industry and it was great and... But what happened as I, as my, as I continued to use substances and drink alcohol, my depression would get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse where, you know, I can think of times where I'd lay in bed for two weeks straight, couldn't Couldn't go to work, couldn't get out of bed. I mean, I'd go, I'd eat and go back to bed, but like, and I would just be in bed crying for weeks and 
not knowing what to do. And, you know, and at that point, obviously really knowing that there was a problem with substances and alcohol, but not being able to stop. Like I remember looking in a mirror, however many times I've done this, looked in the mirror and said, you do not want to do this. You do not want to go out tonight. Don't go out tonight. Don't go to the liquor store. Don't mm -hmm. pick up. You don't want to. Right. And doing it at the same time. Right. Like I just couldn't. It was like this internal struggle that it was so excruciating that, you know, it just, it <laughs> took me to this, such a dark, dark place. And, right. you know, years later, uh, my husband and I separated and our separation was <laughs> not fun, which right. I don't know how many are, yeah. but I think again, that also fueled my addiction. Mm. Um, and I continued to get more depressed and more anxious. And that's when I would start to go to the hospital. So that's okay. when my days of going out or nights going out with friends would end up I'd be in the hospital the next day right. or two days later because I was either you know I was worried about my own safety yep. I was so depressed or I would feel like I was dying um, and that's when my journey of starting to go to the hospital happened and at that time I remember going to the hospital and no one would ever help me mm going and being turned away going didn't even get, and being turned didn't away get seen nope nope wow there was times where i would be in the er and i would get through the triage and i guess you know waiting to be seen by a doctor and i would watch everybody who came after me get being seen, seen oh. first and yeah. like it's gonna be that such a was helpless feeling right? helpless you're already feeling. in a helpless, helpless position so right. those hospital visits started and uh, my depression got worse and I just sank deeper and deeper. And it wasn't just like a depression. It was a pure feeling of absolutely no self-worth. Like I felt and truly believed at this point and up until then this feeling was growing that I was completely worthless, that I was a terrible mother, that I was a terrible human, that I was a terrible wife. I, I, I will just not like, why am I even here? Like I, right. what am I good at? You know, yeah. like I can fake it, right. you know, and put on a smile and make people think that I'm okay, which I was very, very, very good at. Right. But I was like dying inside. The negative self-talk's just taking over. Oh, it yeah. was just, yeah. Um, and you know, I'd been on antidepressants for years and, but of course I guess I kept drinking while I was on them. Now right. I think, you know, at the time I was like, well, it's fine. I'm taking the antidepressants. And now I get that it doesn't really work that way. Right. So probably that's why I never felt better, but who knows? Um, anyway, so fast forward some more years, you know, I'm still plugging away. I'm still going to work, but having these episodes of like deep despair, hmm. um, not going to work for a bit and then going back to work. I don't know how I kept all my jobs. I was never fired. Right. I was never fired yet. There were so many times where either I just didn't show up or I would call in sick for a week or two. Right. It's like, but I think that's almost the most challenging, you know, for someone like you that, that can function and that can retain a job, right? Because 
you can kind of keep on going at that pace, even though, right. you know, you're getting worse and worse internally. Right. On the outside, you can still kind of keep that semblance of, of right. normality. Right. 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 And that's that's a really hard place because it's not as in everyone else's face, you know, totally. that the challenges that you're facing. Right? Totally. And I was so concerned about the way that I looked to other people right. that I put in so much effort to look okay. Keep it together. Keep, Keep it together. It together yeah. Like, oh, I need to make sure that I'm dressed perfectly well, that my makeup is perfect, my hair is perfect, that my car is shiny, that my shoes are always clean. Like... I need to look like I have it together because if I look like I have it together, then people will obviously think that I'm just doing amazing. Right. right? Um, so anyway, that carried on for, I don't know, a number of years. And finally, you know, I got to this point, there was this one night I went out, the night turned into like three. And I remember I was at a point where I felt really no other choice other than thinking that jumping off the roof of, of the apartment building was going to be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Or I could call and ask somebody for help right now. Right. Those are my was options. The, that was the critical moment. That was the critical moment. And those are my only two options. It was either I, I jump mm-hmm. or I call somebody. So I called somebody. My dad was visiting from Ontario at the time. And uh, I called him and I said, I need you to pick me up. And I said, I'm not feeling too good. Like I didn't go into much detail. Hmm. Uh, I remember he came to pick me up. I was staying at a friend's place and he couldn't really say much when he saw me because the, I mean, he could tell by looking at me that I was very much under the influence of God knows what. And he had been through this route before, you know, with my older sibling for, you know, decades, I feel like. And... I said, like, I need help. Like, you need to take me to the hospital. And let me just go back. Like, my previous times at the hospital, too, I would never really actually say that I was under the influence of something. Gotcha. But I would say that I was really sick, which I clearly was, and I needed help, but they still wouldn't help me. I think they could tell that I was, I don't know, drunk or high or... Right, but you weren't Whatever. you weren't being completely was, forthcoming. You were right. No, not at all. Right. Not at all. Um, but this time I was ready pure to surrender. Yeah, a hundred percent. So we went to the hospital and the you know, that was the moment where we went in and the guy said, I can't help you. The guy at the tri- triage. And I said, What do you mean you can't help me? I said, I am under the influence of this and that, and I need help because I feel like I'm dying and I want to stop. And he said, I we can't help you here. And I was crying. I didn't know what to do. Cause I'm like, okay, I'm ask this, like I'm, I'm right. starting this, like what I'm asking for help. And he gave me a card and he goes to go, maybe you can go to detox. So he gives me this card and I'm like, okay, dad, this is where we have to go. So we go to this detox center. It's not where it is now. doesn't really matter. And we go there and we could go inside to the main part. And they're like, you can't come in here. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? I can't come in here. And they're like, you can't just come in. I'm like, I need detox. Like, I need to detox from these substances. I feel like I'm dying. I need help now. And they said, yeah, sorry. But you can fill out this paperwork. And 
you know, we can get you in here maybe in 10 to 14 days. So at that time, it was 10 to 14 days, which right. doesn't seem that bad considering the wait time is now. But I bet in but real at time, that time, I thought like there's a, no way. Right. Like, I'm like, this is, you can't, like, I thought it was a joke. Right. And again, I was just like sobbing and like begging for help. Right. And they were like, well, this is this, you know, this is such an unknown for so many people in the general, you know, public don't realize that if you are calling out for help, the expectation yeah. is that you receive help immediately, right? And we know like 10 to 14 days now in today's climate is, that's actually like, that's really amazing. Oh, totally. People so, are stoked to hear that. But, you know, any any kind of wait when you've actually made up your mind, I'm going to do something about this. Yeah. You know, it's devastating, right? It's this huge It was barrier. like a gut punch. It was yeah. like, you know. Just hold that thought. Hold that thought. Days? So 10 to 14 days. And then in the meantime, fill out this paperwork and you can get a counselor. But that's not going to be for probably another few months. <laughs> right. Right. Great. <laughs> so Thanks, like, guys. Wow. Yeah. Right. Um, so... <laughs> I, yeah, so we drove home. Um, I remember reaching out to somebody at the time on the drive home. Still, I was in shock because I wanted help and I couldn't get help and blah, blah, blah. And then somebody reaching out, or I reached out to somebody and said, you know, just so you know, this is my deal. I have a problem. For some reason, I feel like you don't drink or do any of these other things. Have you ever been to any recovery meetings? I can't remember how I phrased right. it. And they came back with, yes, I do go to these recovery meetings. And I was floored because I thought, okay, this is meant to be like, this is crazy. And they said, you need to go to this meeting. Um, like that was their suggestion anyway, in the meantime, while I wait. So I went home and I detoxed at home with my family I mean, my kids were little, so I don't even remember if they were there or if they were at their dad's house at the time. Um, you know, I, by this time too, I had a new partner who is sober and didn't live the same kind of life as me. And I had thought I had been hiding it for all this time. And right. I came out to him and I said, I, you know, I'm an addict and I'm, you know, an alcoholic. And he was like, no shit, right. <laughs> basically. <laughs> right. Tell right? me something I don't know. Yeah. yeah right. Tell me something I don't know. Yeah. I think he was just waiting for me to right. he, say you it. You needed to, to come like to ask. this conclusion. Yeah. You say, right. Yeah. Right. So fast forward. Okay. So that was in, I remember it was in July. It was in July of 2015 because I remember it was the middle of summer and I then began to call all the numbers that I had been given every single day okay start to really work uh, oh <laughs> right. i started to really work yeah. because for me quite honestly i knew if i didn't get help and get better i would die right i knew i would die so there was this extra conviction piece that yeah. just kind of hit yeah. yeah yeah um and so i called the numbers that i was given you know for the outreach services and the counselor every single day until I was finally able to get an appointment, which I don't know, I think was a couple months later. At this time in between, I was going to meetings um, daily so I could try to do something to keep my body and mind preoccupied. Um, I've never been hit so, you know, it's funny how, I don't think people talk about this enough, is when you actually stop, like when you make a conscious 
mental decision to stop using or drinking, your body and your mind go into overload. I need more of it now. Like it is like the craving of all cravings, the obsession of all obsessions. It's like it's enough to honestly make somebody go crazy, you know? So I was lucky enough that I was able to get myself to go to these meetings in the meantime. And I got a call the beginning of October saying that I could go to treatment. Right. So that was in July. I'd finally in like September started seeing a counselor. And then in October I got offered a treatment bed in Vancouver. And I said, yeah, sign me up, sign me up, sign me up. But you know, after I hung up, I thought, can I even do this? Right. I've got kids. Totally. You know, I'm a mom. All the reality. I have of, right. two kids at home. Can you put your life on I hold? I have two little girls. Oh, I have a job. Right. Oh, I need to pay rent. Right. I need to do all these things. How do I take myself out of my life for three months? Which means right. I would miss my daughter's birthdays. I wouldn't be home for Christmas. Right. But again, it's Hard. like I like, knew if I didn't give myself this chance. I would probably die because I didn't trust enough that everything else was going to work. Right. Um, like be enough to keep me sober and clean. And really, basically. That's, that's just such an impossible decision. We see that all the time too, right? Where people, yeah, I have this life that I'm trying to keep together. But if I don't put that life on hold and work on myself completely, totally, then it's probably all going to fall apart anyway. Exactly. Right? And so that's it's just like hard, hard, hard place 100%. to be. Yeah. And that's what you know, people had to say to me, like, look, okay, so you don't want to go. Oh, you, so you'll miss your daughter's birthdays or these special moments. If you don't go, you might die and you'll never have those moments again anyway. Or maybe you'll have your kids taken away or maybe, you know, and it was the scariest decision I've ever made in my life. I've never felt so weak, so vulnerable, like, it's funny because it's such a courageous decision. But I, though, but right? I felt like I was, yeah, it, it's yeah. so hard to explain the right. emotions that were going on. So yeah, anyway, I went and first few nights I, th- <laughs> I cried and I cried. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm uh, not somebody that is used to rules or that obeys rules or that follows rules. Ever. Like right. I, I will find, no, I, it's not for me. Um, you know, I've always had this attitude where it's like, well, if I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. No one can right. make me what, this is my life. So I'm going to treatment where I can't have my phone. I have a certain bedtime. Oh, I have this certain wake up time. Right. Yeah. You know, I have to eat a certain type of food. I have to do these classes. And the first couple of nights I remember I cried like a baby. Um, I was able to call home on a pay phone every day and I was convinced I was in jail and by the end of the three months, I didn't want to leave. I did not want to leave. It was the most amazing experience to this day that I've had because it was completely focused on me. Three months of completely focusing on me, my health, what I need to get better, why I am the way I am, you know, working on things like traumas that have happened and how those shifted me into becoming somebody who I really wasn't who I who I really wasn't 
I wasn't that person. Right. Like they just, I learned so much. So, um, yeah, I did that and I came back in January. So I was there for three months and I got six months sober and then I relapsed. <laughs> okay. And that was terrible. And so I felt, common. <laughs> I right? know, yeah. but yeah. I remember being in treatment and talking to this girl and we were having this conversation with each other being like, I am never going to drink again. I am right. never going to use again. Like, you know, no, I'm just not like right. it's done. I'm done. Like being so convinced in my head that I would yeah. never do that again. And then six months later, you know, it was just, it was just, right. you know, I went back out for a night. Like it was like a night thing. Yeah. And that was my pattern for the next few years. So I would get six months, seven months, 10 months at right. one time. And something. And then something would, would happen and I would go drink or use, you know? Right. Um, and I, and I know why, like I, I now know looking back, I, I, totally know why I wasn't willing although I knew I was an addict and an alcoholic and I needed to do these things to get better I wasn't willing to really dig deep enough right. to be completely honest with myself and others to get better okay and it's hard to even explain what that means like to get really honest like I had to like the most vulnerable of vulnerables, <laughs> if that's even so makes kinda, sense. You feel like you're the the armor was just up enough. It was to just keep that door open. That teeny tiny, mm. yeah, it was up just that tiny a bit that kept me going out. Right. So, fast forward to I don't know when was it? It was. A, let's say five years ago, yeah. over five years ago now, right. was my last relapse that landed me in the hospital. I was found unconscious in a oh. hotel room. <laughs> oh. uh, I never checked out, so people found me, wondered why I guess I hadn't checked out, and I woke up uh, days later in the emergency room or ICU, I honestly can't remember. Um, and I was in the hospital for a bit like a week or two I can't quite remember and at that point something clicked I thought like I, I it, it scared me enough where I thought I can never right. I can't do this anymore you know like I almost died and the actual realization that I almost died and left my kids without a mom right was like I can't fucking do this anymore right that was like something for like, and then, you know, followed by immense shame and regret and remorse of going out again to begin with and putting my family in this position of a not knowing where I was and like hunting hospitals for me right. and my kids not knowing where I was. And, you know, I just at that point, I was so close to dying that I made it, you know, something happened, something happened. And I said to myself, I will do anything anybody ever asks me to do from now until forever. If it means I will be sober. Right. And if it means I never have to feel this feeling anymore. Right. 
And then I guess luckily with the amount of work that you had put in, you have some totally. tools to actually oh my God. put into action, right? Which totally. is the key piece here. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that with relapse, this is the problem is, you know, I, I, people sometimes feel like they're starting from scratch. And sometimes yeah. family members will put that on like, oh, what was that man. all? That was just oh, a waste. Oh, man. No, no. That, that experience that yeah. you've, and the hard work that yeah. you put in on yourself doesn't go away. Yeah. Then once it kind of added to that X factor, that determination, you have all these tools now that you can start employing, right? Yeah, 100%. And you know what? And th- that's the unfortunate thing is <laughs> as an addict or as somebody who does relapse, I don't know how we can not feel that way mm-hmm. of feeling like, oh my God, I, I failed. Right. I have failed this. Like yeah. I fucked this up. I'm never going to get it. Something is wrong with me. Right. I am back to square one. Right. But now, you know, looking back now, I'm like, I was right. never back at square never. one. I had learned so much along the way. Yeah. I had gained such a community of people in recovery that I could go to mm. that I had the support there. And I, yeah. and I had tools that I had worked on. I just hadn't been using them, you know, a hundred percent like I, I don't even want to say should have been. I guess I just right. wasn't able to at that time. Right. But yeah. I got to the point where 100% was what I was finally able to put in. Right. And that's when, yeah, I mean, that's when really everything changed for me. Right. Is, as I said, it didn't matter what somebody said. If they said, you know, go stand on your head in the corner of wherever for an hour, it's like, okay, I'll do it. Right. If that means I'm not going to drink again or... Yeah you know, go meet with this person and tell them your deepest, darkest, most terrible secret to get it out of you so you can heal. Okay, I guess I'll have to do do that, that. you know? And those are the things that I wasn't really willing to do. But it was once I really got those things out of me that the weight was lifted and I just felt like it was possible, like I could actually... Right. The recovery was possible. Right. And... You know, the first, I remember the first year was a, a struggle, but not in the way that it had been. Like I didn't have cravings anymore. Yep. Life still, gets, I, life still gets in your life way. Life still gets in the way. Yep. But I never, you know, the cravings never came back in that first year, I think, cause I had gone so low. Right. Um, but the year seemed to drag on forever. Like mm. I remember like, oh, I just need to get this year right. because before, like I'd always tried, you know, having a year of sobriety, I thought was the be all end all. Right. Like I just need mm. to get to that one date and then right. I'm good. Right. Um, the year just seemed to drag on. And, you know, as I said, like now I have over five years and it right. feels like it was yesterday. Right. Like <laughs> it literally feels like it was yesterday. And right. when I say that, like when I say to somebody or that word comes into my mouth five years, I think, how is that even possible? Right. How is that possible? Like I never thought in a million years it was possible. Yeah. But it, I work a very strong recovery program. Right. I surround myself as much as I can with healthy people that are sober. I still have some friends that are like normal type drinker people that might have like a glass of wine at dinner. Like those are the friends that I can keep. Anyone else I had to ditch, you know, but I surround myself with happy, healthy good influences and people that I can turn to when, you know, 
I have some kind of a struggle or right. whatever, right? Right. So you've you've kind of found your found I, your community, I found your my connection. Community. And, right. I found my community, and you know, it's funny. Like I can talk about all these things now, and I can tell my story. You know, I do gr- other groups and things like that, and I've told my story more in depth, I must say, um, mm. some, at sometimes um, so easily. Right. You know, like it just comes out right. where, you know, when I was first going to meetings and first tried the recovery thing, all I hard. did was cry. Right. I'd go to a meeting or a group and I could not talk. I would cry. Like I just couldn't do it. The emotion was just the way emotion, too And I yeah, just, I, I just was so unsure and so insecure and, you know, I've always, always, always been able to fake being okay. Right. Right. But I couldn't in those times, you know, um, and now finally it's like, I don't have to fake anything. Right. You can be your genuine self. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't fake anything. Right. And, you know, I said, we, we did this thing here at Umbrella a while ago and, you know, I said that recovery has given me the life that I n- never thought would be possible for myself. Right. And as cheesy as that sounds, it is a hundred percent true. Right. Like I am so happy. I'm so healthy. I have the most amazing relationship with my family, hmm. with my daughters, you know, a key to that is I've always been really open and honest with them about my struggles and what's going on. And, yeah. um, you know, I might not have all the materialistic kind of things that I, I used to think were important. Right. But like, life is so good. Totally. Life is so good. Like my problems, like, yeah. Well, I think that, you know what, and when I say you're, you know, someone who kind of holds self with confidence, I think it's the fact that you can be genuine, you know? And yeah. I think that, that being able to be genuine is like the biggest sign of confidence is being comfortable enough with yourself yeah. to be yourself. Totally. Right. And, and, but like you say, that takes tons of work. And if you look back, you're like, wow, I can't believe that I'm at this place where I can yeah. you know, be that person. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I'm a totally different person. Yeah. That's, that's and amazing. today, like I live a life where like, I really could give two shits about what somebody thinks yeah. about me. I really don't care. <laughs> you know, yeah. Where it to used be. to be all I think about. Right. right? It's right. like now I, I, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to touch briefly too. I mean, obviously you do terrific work. With us uh, for for Umbrella, you um, are the co-facilitator of our women's group that happens mm-hmm. here every Saturday, and I, I think it's just such a an amazing uh, you know uh, opportunity for women to connect in recovery, just as women, and can kind of have have a little bit more of a specific uh, place to to you know, and you know build that community yeah. within themselves and and. Yeah. Uh, you know, your work at the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, helping individuals kind of who had had similar issues and, and situations as yourself, right? Coming mm-hmm. back in and being that, um, you know, that role model and that that guide through this really, you know, complex system. Um, you know, I, I would love to hear, you know, your, your experience, you know, starting with the women's group, you know, what's what's that meant to you? And, and what do you what do you feel, you know, your experience with that? You know, can you touch on that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, it's funny, even thinking that I'm a facilitator, co-facilitated women's group to me sounds so weird because <laughs> years ago, the idea of being in a room with a bunch of women talking about 
feelings and our experiences, there is no way. Like I would do anything else. I didn't trust people. I I didn't trust other women. I think I was so insecure that it was like there was no way. I, you know, I'm so judgmental. I was always, I just was never felt safe enough where either I would not judge somebody or I felt like they weren't judging me. So to be in a position now where I do this women's group every Saturday and I love it is pretty um, tremendous. So I've been doing this group for over a year Mm. now, every Saturday. I think we've missed a couple during like holidays or something like that. And it is the most amazing experience because it's women from all over like all different all types of, of life all, all walks of life yep. all different dem- demographics all in early stages of recovery or people who have maybe had years of sobriety or clean time and then have fallen off and come back or you know people who want an alternative to like 12 step groups or other specific type of recovery groups um it's really amazing we you know it's it's a like a conversational based discussion mm. type group we have different topics all the time and we it's a very open format right. um and i think what is truly the most amazing that i find is watching people from week one to week eight and that's only one day a week for eight weeks and seeing the change in them right in eight weeks one day a week is crazy right the positive changes that can happen in such a short period of time given you know the right environment with the right people and the right support mm-hmm. um is truly amazing and i you know there hasn't been a time where we've you know, ended on, on our week eight and the ladies are like, we don't want to leave. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like we want to yeah. come back. Like we don't want this to end. Right. right? And um, it's just a place where people can be vulnerable and they know that there's no judgment. There's everything's confidential. You know, we're all in this together. And hmm. um, it's just, it feels, I feel really honored to be part of it. I really, right. really do. Cause again, like ask me even, you know, the beginning of my recovery days, if this is something I would have do, would have done, I'd be like, fuck no. Right. <laughs> That's yeah, not totally. my kind of thing. Totally. No. And now it's like, I live for it. Right. You know, and it keeps me sober. Yeah. You know, like, well, it's that connection. You know, I really, I, I think it's that connection piece. And you know, I, I see it in, in the, the group that, that I run as well. When people get to a point where they feel safe enough to let their guard down totally. and be vulnerable. Yeah. There's something that, yeah, that connection is something that you, you, you really can't, I can't put to words, but it's very tangible yeah. in the room and you can feel that. And, yeah. you know, and, and I think the fact that you cre- can create that space and people trust you enough to create yeah. that space, I think yeah. it's amazing. And I speak, I think yeah. it speaks a lot to your recovery yeah. totally. and, uh, you know, um, so that's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and I'm, no. I think it comes probably more naturally to you than others, but, um, I, yeah, like I said, I think that connection and we always say that, you know, that, that line, that connection is the opposite of addiction. Like I'm a true believer 100%. of that, you know, and I think that's just another testament to that. Yeah. I'm super uh, grateful. That's awesome. Yeah. 
can we speak really quickly about totally. the hospital? So, so you you work in the hospital as a you know peer support worker. Um, you know, you kind of basically shadow. You know, you, you you present almost more like a social worker with a little bit more experience. We kind of present that uh, non clinical side totally. to to the hospital, right? And, yeah. and which is so desperately needed. Totally, and that friendly face that understands. Yeah. Um, First question, you know, obviously you see such an array of people coming through right now, you know, the challenges, you know, and the amount of people we're seeing through the doors are probably at record highs. What's the biggest challenge you face in in your role? And I do like to talk about this because, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand the challenges. And this is you as a support worker and working with a team of social workers and doctors. What's the biggest challenge you face? The biggest challenge that I slash we um as a team um, at the hospital face is <laughs> the, you know, kind of going back to like my early days of recovery is things not being available fast enough still, right. you know, right. like I was talking to somebody today in the hospital, so desperate, so sick, but so wanting to get better mm-hmm. and asking for help and asking, you know, to go to detox or to treatment. And you still can't get there right right away, right? There's a wait for everything. Um, And that to me is the biggest struggle is that that there seems to still be this gap, this huge gap of wait times for people who need intense recovery support. It's just... It's there, but it's not easy to get. They need it now. They, they need, need it, it now. Right. You know, we I was dealing with somebody today who, you know, has been to the hospital quite a few times in the last little while. And we've got, you know, different treatment referrals in. And I got an email back from one of the treatment centers saying, nope, we won't take him. He's got too much stuff going on. It's like, how is that a thing? Right. You know, like... So he wants he wants the help. He, he needs wants the help. The help. He but needs the help. But there's it's not just, specific enough it's of a program. Specific for enough him, of not a, enough supports in right. place. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think my role specifically at Umbrella is, I mean, everyone's role is important. But I feel, yeah, like being that peer support person, we can get in there a little bit more, you know, with the patients and clients that we see, and just building that level of trust up a little bit more where I can say to somebody like, look, like if it's not going to happen today, like let me connect you to our services here at umbrella and we will have your back no matter what until it happens. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. And often I'll share a little bit about my story and you can tell when you're in the hospital and you're a recovering addict or you're in active addiction, you can tell when somebody you're talking to is also in re- in recovery or gets it you know somebody who's walked the walk you yeah. know not just a social worker or not just a doctor you know talking this clinical yeah. you know you know these clinical things and terms and whatever like it just we can build a little bit of a different deeper relationship which right. to me is probably the most meaningful part because yeah. we can't always get them the intense help that they need right away, but to let them know that we, that they are worthy, right? Like I'm that they're worthy that we see them, that we know they need help. And if they just stick with us, if they're ready or when they're ready, we will, we will will keep working on it. You know what? And I think that's when we hear over and over again, you know, the stories of people who have come into the hospital and they have met with 
either yourself or uh, someone else from our team or, you know, hearing stories from in, in the past or, or old workers there. And, and that line is what planted the seed. Maybe that wasn't where they accessed that support right away, but that's what started that getting the wheels in motion that, hey, this is possible to make that change. And yeah, um, so I think I think it's great. I, I agree with you. I think not having the support in real time is, you know, a constant challenge. And I, I do feel like people out there, you know, there's this kind of misconception that people don't want to get better. Yeah. I would say that so yeah. many more people want to get better than than we understand. Yeah. A lot of times they've just tried and they have faced these barriers or these long wait times and they've gone, well, yeah. this is too much. They feel it's, defeated. It's, it, They're they like, what's defeated. the point? It's the what is what's the point? Yeah, and and that's a point? very different than actually wanting to get better. It's not that they don't want to get better. They have tried <laughs> and they've seen how difficult yeah. this process is and how fucked up the system is, yeah. you know? And it's like, um, you know, I just want to touch on something else that just kind of popped in my head as another challenge that I see. Unfortunately, often in the hospital is, you know, not all of the hospital staff is as empathetic as maybe the team that I work on is. Right. And they don't see somebody in addiction, in active addiction as a human or right. worthy of the same level of care in the hospital that others get. You know, right. I, I see that almost daily. It depends, yeah. you know, and that's comes back to, I think, you know, the hospital staff or all healthcare work, like everybody needs more ed education yeah. on this is a disease. You know, in my yeah. opinion, I'm not a doctor, but right. I think addiction is a disease and it should be treated as such, just like any other thing, you know, right. and we need to treat these people with compassion and care and empathy and, and as humans and as, as people, humans, right. you Absolutely. know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it's hard and it's hard seeing that. Right. And, and, you Oh, know. it's so hard and yeah. it's hard to, you know, and sometimes I speak up and I, I, right. It's part of the role. Respectfully, right? uh, put my two cents in and, yeah. you know, but, uh, it's, it's it's hard. hard. It's hard to break a culture, right? And, yeah. and hard to break, you know, preconceived ideas, yeah. right? So, yeah. I, I think you're I think you're doing fantastic work down there. Um, you know, for me, I think we could keep on going for a long time. I mean, we're just we're just getting started, you know, with all your, <laughs> your work with youth. I, I I really want to pick your brain on more. I think we're kind of at the point though where I think we have to wrap things up. Yeah. Um, but I would like to know. Just I, I always kind of ask this somebody fresh into recovery or somebody like just thinking about recovery, like on that precipice of, of making a change. You know, if you see someone come into a room that, you know, is, is wanting to make that change, but is, doesn't know how, what do you say to someone like that? Do you have any words of wisdom that, that, that you can impart or you do impart? You know, I think I don't always say the same thing, but mm. I think it's important to acknowledge when I talk to somebody the way that you're feeling right now is not the way that you have to feel forever right. because it's not it sure the drugs and the substances and the alcohol and all that is a thing, but it's the way it makes us feel. Mm. And to tell somebody that they don't have to keep feeling this way mm. and there is hope and there are people to help you. That's it. It's right. like that. You don't have to feel this way forever. It that right. feeling will go away. Right. Yeah. Like, cause that was it for me. It was the feeling, you know, it was the, right. it was the awful worthlessness and right. depression. It and was those feelings that was, right. yeah, yeah, it was like, that was what was the worst of it. Right. right. So, right. okay. Yeah. Well, 
I, I, that, I think that's a perfect way to close out. That is, that's remarkable. Um, and you know what? And I think that hopefully we can, you know, keep pumping messages, that message to, yeah. you know, people who are, who are trying, you know, yeah. I see so much hope and recovery and, and we have the luxury of seeing people who, you know, get on the other side of this totally. and start seeing success and building totally. their recovery and coming totally. back to themselves. And, you know, that's why, you know, I think it's important to have these podcasts and keep on pumping that, you know, this is possible. It's possible. And there's hope. And, there's you know, hope. Um, yeah. And Just reach out. It, right. Yeah. We've seen, you know, I, I've seen what, nothing, you know, something that people would say is a miracle where you know, someone, where they started to where they are yes. now. And yeah. it does take hard work and, and dedication. It takes some falls along the way. Yeah. But it's, it's there. You yeah. Know? So yeah. Anyways, I really, really appreciate you coming in and, um, and sharing your story. I know it's not easy. Um, but I'm, I think it's really important. Uh, and I think just being, uh, just a, a strong woman in recovery is, is really important. I want to have that voice out there. So, um, I really admire you for, for coming in and being able to share your story so genuinely. Aww, so, thanks Blake thank you for so having much. me. Yeah, that was fun. Right. Easier may, than I, even, I thought. <laughs> there you go. You know, I may have you back sometime now, you know, awesome. now that you're I'd a seasoned like veteran. Yes. Okay. Thanks so much. All right, there you have it. Thank you so much again to Rebecca for coming on this program. Uh, such an inspirational story and uh, really appreciate taking the time to do that. Um, once again, we are just going to keep on pumping out these uh, stories of recovery. Uh, we're going to start delving into some other aspects of recovery as well. So please stay tuned. We will have another podcast coming out in two weeks time and we're just going to keep this ball rolling. Thank you so much for listening. Keep sharing. Keep spreading the word of recovery. Recovery is possible. We need to get that word out there to uh, everybody and anyone. Um, hope you have a great day. We will see you in two weeks. For the Umbrella Society, I am Blake Anderson. Yeah.